I think it's a complete injustice of the world and so wholly unfair that someone who can contribute so little to this issue can be affected so devastatingly. And I see it all the time. You know, people do think that it's coming 10 years down the road or, or, you know, 20 years down the road. But like we said earlier, people are living through it now. Welcome to I'm Fucking the Future. I'm your host, Chris Turney. I'm a climate scientist based in Sydney, Australia. I've been researching climate change from the poles to the tropics for almost 30 years. And I'll be the first to admit that we've royally fucked up our planet. But I believe that we can still turn things around. That's what this show is all about. We'll talk to people making a real difference in fighting against global heating and learn how we can make a difference too. So let's get started. We're on fucking the future. We fight with those who have been forgotten. We fight with those who have been neglected. Millions of rural people who starve, feeding the world. People who depend on their land for independence, but whose land suffers the effects of climate change, not in some near future, but today. People who remind me of my mother, who once depended on that land as well and is now here with me today. That's our guest today, Sabrina Elba, accepting the Time 100 Impact Award. She and her husband, the actor Idris Elba, are UN Goodwill Ambassadors. They've been focusing on an often overlooked aspect of a climate crisis, the impact on the rural and developing world. It's important work for two reasons – First, these areas are often the most vulnerable to the effects of global heating. And second, these populations have not caused the mess we're in. They produce so little greenhouse heating gases, but they've been at the forefront of a climate crisis for years. It's just not right. It's also a personal passion for Sabrina because of her background. While she was born in Canada, her family is from Somalia in eastern Africa. And her Somali heritage was a big part of her life growing up. My mom left in the early 80s and she says she thinks she was one of three Somali people in Canada. I cannot guarantee those numbers are correct, I mean, but that's what she says. So we'll take her word for it. She came to Canada. She was pregnant with my older sister. She had so many dreams. You know, she wanted to finish school. She wanted to do all these exciting new things that were new to her, obviously being in a different country. But she quickly had five kids before she knew it. And she was a stay-at-home mom. And I always saw that as powerful because she did Mm -hmm. so many things in one day. I couldn't imagine how she could do all these things and, you know, drive me one place and, and cook dinner and, you know, take care of my dad. Even though she had a lot on her plate, Sabrina's mum, Mariam, made sure her kids understood their cultural heritage. There is a very strong identity attached to the country itself. And I carried that with me. You know, the language, the food is a big part of it, family over all the time. And I loved it. I loved growing up in my Somali-Canadian household. And my mom made sure that, you know, we understood our, our culture and went back to visit as often as we could. So I was super thankful to be growing up two languages and two identities and uh, I think it only made for good you know conversation especially in Canada where cultures are welcome. It was through her mum's example that Sabrina found her passion for activism. She's always been a humanitarian which I don't know if I quite appreciated when I was younger because she left a lot to go help when she could. She'd go to Somalia, she started a water project, she'd 
distribute water to to rural areas that didn't have much. And she'd, you know, she'd help families in whatever way she could. And when I was younger, I remember thinking, why do you have to keep leaving? You know, why can't you stay with us? And when I was younger, I didn't understand why she was so passionate. But she always did say, you know, this is what I want to change. This is why I'm doing what I do. I want to to go back one day and see the beauty that I remember. And actually in my advocacy and my humanitarian work, as I get older, I start to realize a lot of my passions have aligned with hers. As a kid, Sabrina's mum would take her to Somalia. And what she saw was a country full of pristine natural beauty. But that was changing and fast. My visits when I was younger, the difference between visiting back then and visiting, you know, last year was my most recent visit. It's astronomically different just in terms of, I feel, you know, the weather, you notice a big change. When we were younger, I don't know if I quite noticed it because I only noticed like, oh my gosh, camels, how exciting, (laughs) sand, how exciting. Um, But the older I got uh, and the more I'd go back, I'd realize that, you know, these people really are trying to rebuild from, from massive amounts of not only physical but cultural destruction. Somalia suffers from some of the worst effects of global heating. While you might just think that means rising temperatures, the situation goes far beyond that. Which brings us to our segment, Holy Fuck. Holy Fuck. Less than 2% of Somalia is productive farmland. Meanwhile, that tiny portion generates 75% of the country's economy. So that means having productive growing seasons every year is critical in Somalia. Unfortunately, Somalia has had five years of drought. No rain means no crops, and no crops means famine. There's 7.8 million people in Somalia who experience food insecurity, and 1.4 million of them are children under five years old who are suffering from malnutrition. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And to make matters even worse, Somalia actually did get rain this year. So much rain that it's caused catastrophic flooding and displaced more than 700,000 people. The country is experiencing one climate extreme event after another. This kind of crisis has another terrifying side effect. It creates political instability and enables violent extremism. And that's exactly what's happening in Somalia. The country is in the middle of a decades-long civil war between the federal government and al-Qaeda-aligned militants. The causes of the war are complex, but the climate crisis is contributing to famine and therefore to the political instability. It's just one example of the enormous and far-reaching impacts of global heating. Okay, back to Sabrina. As she discovered, the climate crisis is not just about bad weather. It creates a risk of war and of cultural destruction. We do think of it as being solely an environmental issue, but we also forget that it's happening right now in a lot of places. And we're seeing more and more climate conflict. On one hand, you have the idea of whole areas being underwater by some future type thing where you can imagine communities might be lost and cultures might be lost and that haunts me. But on the other hand, you're seeing real conflicts and conflict can lead to very real things like, you know, genocides and and other horrendous things where you see other 
beautiful cultures and peoples potentially wiped out. We forget that there are rural people all over the world who are not only suffering the impacts of climate change now, but are really extremely vulnerable to um, worsening effects or, or maybe things we haven't even thought of down the road. So Somalia and other rural communities are experiencing some of the worst impacts of a climate crisis. And maybe the most gut-wrenching part is that it's not their fault. It's rich developed economies that have pumped out the vast majority of pollution that is causing global heating. It's a complete injustice of the world and so wholly unfair that someone who can contribute so little to this issue can be affected so devastatingly. And I see it all the time. You know, people do think that it's coming 10 years down the road or, or you know, 20 years down the road. But mm-hmm. like we said earlier, people are living through it now. People are being affected now and also feeling that injustice. You know, we're not just talking about crops or livestock. We're talking about people's lives mm. um, when we're talking about loss and damages. And, you know, it's, I find it hard to find an argument against. OK, I want to pause right there on that concept. Loss and damages. It's a hot topic in the environmental community right now. And it brings us to a segment we call, What the Fuck Are You Talking About? What the fuck are you talking about? Across the world, we are all trying to figure out how to adapt to the climate crisis. In the United States, the government recently passed the Inflation Reduction Act. This historic bill contains at least $400 billion in climate-related spending. That's billion with a B. And this is a great thing because transitioning to clean energy and mitigating impacts of a hotter world is going to be expensive. So this money is going to be really helpful. But here's the thing. Not every country has that kind of money. To use Somalia as an example, their whole GDP is only about $11 billion. To match the investment of the Inflation Reduction Act, adjusted for population, Somalia would still have to spend roughly seven years of their entire economic output, all for a problem they didn't even cause. This has led to an effort to make rich countries like the US compensate poorer countries for the losses and damages caused by the climate crisis. And this could go a long way in helping these poorer countries recover from these crises and adapt to a hotter world. If we want places like Somalia to continue to exist, we're going to need to pay up for the harm we've caused. And that's what the fuck we're talking about. What the fuck are you talking about? Sabrina believes that paying loss and damages to poorer countries is the absolute least we can do to make things right. So much of the narrative in in so many different parts of the world has become about, there's lots of talk about migrant issues and, oh, who's welcome and who's not welcome, but why do people Mm. leave? You know, so many people wouldn't have left Somalia if there wasn't conflict. People leave because there's there's a reason they can't stay. And more frequently, that's becoming climate. That we're causing <laughs> in the global yes. north. How are we then going to turn around and say, well, we're sorry that your homeland is getting destroyed. There's still no opportunities there because of either a drought or a famine or whatever, or flooding. But no, you can't come in here either. It's a very kind of ignorant way of thinking when we don't think holistically about issues. Mm. So I hope that people look at um, issues like the ones that we're talking about as, as global issues rather than a them problem versus an us problem. 
Unfortunately, that's something we're seeing more and more. Climate change knows no borders. When the climate changed in the past, you moved. But nowadays, we have these pesky borders, and they're limiting movement and opportunities for people affected by climate change. The UN International Organization for Migration says that as many as 1 billion people will be environmental migrants in the next 30 years. The question is not whether this will happen, but how we will respond to it. So far, the reaction from countries that have caused the climate crisis, and I should mention the countries that have historically benefited from migrants, has been to make migration difficult for people seeking safety. But I also want to point out that climate migration isn't just an international issue. Even in the United States, people are leaving low-lying and fire-prone areas for places with stronger climate resilience. But that doesn't change that the global south is facing the harshest symptoms of climate change, and we're seeing a huge number of migrants fleeing their homelands because of climate-related issues. And those numbers are only increasing. But migration doesn't have to be the only solution. And it shouldn't be. People shouldn't be forced to flee their homeland. And so right now, we need to help support resiliency efforts in areas that are on the front lines of a climate crisis. We also put this, I think, expectation on rural communities to scale up to the same way that the global north can and and mm. to, to move quick to, to change over to renewable energies when it's like, okay, they... <laughs> you know, it takes time. It takes time. How are you expected to to fight climate change if you you can't you don't even have a, a an accurate reading device <laughs> for the weather? You know, like simple mm. technologies to adapt to to changing climate are so important. Um, but even these technologies are so underfunded um, for for rural people. How can we put these expectations on people? We're on fucking the future. We're on fucking the future. The good news is there are people working hard to solve this problem. Loss and damages was a big issue at the recent COP28 climate summit. And I was slightly relieved to see several wealthy countries put up money for the loss and damage fund. But their contributions amounted to less than half a percent of what is needed. I'm a hopeful person, but honestly, really? It's a drop in the ocean. Which is why we have to focus on the many different avenues and approaches to solving the Global South's climate crisis right now. Sabrina's been working with EFAD. The International Fund for Agricultural Development is a UN agency that focuses on projects related to agriculture and rural communities. I wouldn't have thought that I would ever be doing work in agriculture. I mean, if someone said that to me, I probably would have been, mm. well, what are you talking about? But there might have been maybe a couple of things about my identity and my beliefs that I shared with my husband that kind of influenced us to, to work with EFAD in the first place. And one of those was that we looked at the aid model, the general aid model, and I look, there's a time and place for aid. I think it's super important, but I do think it can be really short-sighted. If you're offering a Band-Aid, over a band-aid, over a band-aid. Mm. You're not really getting to the root cause of an issue. And when I learned about the work that EFAD was doing and how they not only teach people how to live off the land they live on by providing them with education around agriculture and giving them a sense of entrepreneurship 
as mm. well as food security, um, you know, I was I was blown away because I realized that that model was meant to actually make people more independent rather than dependent mm. on an agency. And I thought, wow, what a great model. And, yes. you know, it goes to show that actually the majority of impoverished people live in rural communities and what they do have is land. And in that land is opportunity. Places that aren't economically developed often have large regions of unspoilt land, forests and important natural resources. They're also the, technically the custodians of this planet. Imagine the potential if they were given the appropriate tools and education and investment that they deserve, uh, because it is an investment in ourselves, particularly when you translate that to the climate conversation, because then you're talking about people who are protecting the biodiversity of areas, um, who are adapting communities to the climate changes that are happening in real time. Sabrina's witnessed firsthand the benefits of empowering rural communities in the fight against global heating, and it gives a hope. I'll never forget this image of this swampland in Sierra Leone that was converted into to rice farms. And seeing the before and after, I could not believe that land that was so degraded and so turned into this like, you know, massive community with, with women farming. And I always thought that was so amazing. And it just goes to show like even things like land degradation, like we need rural people to restore uh, the world through nature-based solutions. Like I, mm. Nature-based solutions are such a big part of it. And who else is going to protect these areas? Like I said, they're the genuine custodians of our planet, rural people. Mm. And I, I, I'm endlessly amazed, endlessly amazed, and also endlessly touched. I think seeing programs change people's lives um, with such simple technology and such simple, you know, climate resilient seeds, for instance, uh, or, mm. you know, different kinds of fertilizers. It, it just makes a huge, huge difference in people's lives. And at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. After some time working with EFAD on their projects with agricultural communities, the UN approached Sabrina and Idris about becoming official goodwill ambassadors. It was a surreal moment, especially because her mother had connected her with EFAD in the first place. I remember calling my mom and being like, mom, they've asked me to be an ambassador. <laughs> it's so cool. And the first ambassadors that they've had um, on this scale. So, And actually the first couple ever asked to be UN Goodwill Ambassadors, which is kind of interesting. Serving as Goodwill Ambassadors has given Sabrina and Idris a totally new platform to raise awareness about the challenges rural communities are facing. And one of the ways they've been using that platform is to empower women and girls in these communities. So the ties between gender and agriculture became so intertwined for me in a way that I didn't know that I just, it became so much of my passion to see that women are historically at a disadvantage and that's amplified and sort of, you know, be made extreme when you're in situations uh, around climate because you realize if you're already at a disadvantage and you're trying to get land rights mm. or, or access to, to, to finance, um, it only makes it harder for you to adapt or make the changes you need to change. And EFAT does a lot of work in gender. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's all of these different touch points that they've been able to, to expand their work into that really made me passionate about the work that, I, that they do. Once people understand by empowering women or girls, you empower a community, you actually see communities buy into it because it works. 
And a lot of the field visits I do, and like, you know, no shade to men, (laughs) but men are often in the city at the bars and I see women in the fields. You just do. With babies on their back or children on their back, farming all day, sending their kids to school and not spending the money, uh, you know, at a bar or on their friends, but at home and building their home and building women around them. And women give back, uh, you know, in a way that's so much more (laughs) community-led than men do. Mm. That's just statistically true. And I think, look, it's a good thing. It just means we just need to empower women. Women make up nearly half the agricultural labour force in developing countries. They're often also the ones who actually have to feed their families. But as farmers, they have lower yields on their land than men. And that's because of unequal access to resources like fertiliser, credit and good quality land. One UN study found that if women were afforded the same access as men, their agricultural yields would increase by up to 30%. This could even reduce world hunger by 12 to 17%. That would mean pulling 150 million people out of hunger. That's the population of Mexico and Australia combined. If you empower women, they'll be able to do that. Um, You know, so uh, food security, if we're empowering women, they'll help feed their families. And it's been shown and proven time and time again, if you support women and girls, you change communities, you change countries. Um, And I I feel the world really needs to step up to that. IFAD is doing its part. And that's where I'm hopeful is there are amazing programs. There are such amazing grassroots programs. And IFAD does go through government to support grassroots projects as well. And so there are all of these different ways to support rural women and girls. It's just about the funding. The funding isn't there. I mean, look Mm -hmm. at food security funding or climate funding, even and of itself, only 1% goes to something like adaptation, which is one of the biggest hurdles of your community. We're on fucking the future. We're on fucking the future. One of the big takeaways from this conversation, and I imagine a lot of the conversations we'll have on this show, is that it's not always technical fixes that will help us unfuck the future. One big discovery in a lab or the newest startup is not going to get us out of this mess on its own. It's about how we live as a society. And in this case, it means giving rural communities the resources they need to thrive, not just survive. Rural people deserve to be compensated for the losses and damages caused by the climate crisis. And by investing specifically in rural girls and women, we can make progress on climate issues as well as related problems like food insecurity. But those are big government-level solutions. So what can we do as individuals sitting at home listening to this podcast? One of the most important things that we can do is use our voices. And I say that a lot Mm. because... The conversation around food systems and rural people and climate, it it's it needs to be sort of frontline. Like I I sometimes I'm looking at headlines and we're flooded with information that feels so mm. uh, look, if we're not talking about our survival, which is really what it is, um, as a human race, then I 
I don't see why we would be talking about anything else. But I think conversation is so important. I think you inspire change by being the change that you want to be. If you're mindful of these issues, other people will be inspired. And then maybe that'll lead to, you know, more people reaching out to their leaders, more people voting. Um, to, and also kind of understanding and being able to combat the misinformation that's thrown at us all the time. I always say being a UN Goodwill Ambassador is about access. It's about speaking with voices who can't get into the rooms that I'm so fortunate to be able to have access to. Mm. People want their stories shared. People want their struggles shared because you see change when people galvanize together. And we can't galvanize together unless we have these conversations. So using your voice, I would say, is the most important thing. Uh, And it's 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 effectively almost like stories. We're telling our stories and that's how we relate to one another, isn't it? We're Absolutely. We're, we're storytellers. The shortest is. distance between two people is a story. Mm. I heard that somewhere. Some... It's not my own quote, but I thought it was oh, really beautiful. <laughs> Which brings us to how we can help. Maggie Baird, take it away. What the fuck can I do? Maggie, what did you take away from our discussion with Sabrina? So Sabrina isn't only a UN Goodwill Ambassador, she's also the European Board Chair of an organization known as Global Citizen, an organization I also know and love. Global Citizen, also known as Global Poverty Project, is an international education and advocacy organization that seeks to catalyze the movement to end extreme poverty and promote social justice and equity through the lens of intersectionality. My kids, Billy and Phineas, have been big supporters of Global Citizen, performed in the amazing concerts they've given, and just really try to lend their support to the incredible work that Global Citizen does to get people involved, to take action that is effective in so many ways. And anyone can join Global Citizen for free. Once you're part of their network, they'll bring you different actions that you can take to fight global poverty and defend the planet. Because, of course, Poverty and climate change are inextricably entwined. Mm. Some of the actions they recommend are super easy, like tweeting at government officials, for example, which is actually very effective. But they'll also connect you with opportunities to march, to volunteer, and to be part of a community. Because, you know, to be clear, it's maybe not quite enough to send emails and tweets. Like Adam McKay told us last episode, We need to show up in real life, not just on social media. I mean, social media is great, but Global Citizen is a great platform to start your journey into climate action and then find like-minded people who care about this issue just as much as you do. Mm. You can sign up at globalcitizen.org. That's brilliant, Maggie. Honestly, thanks for the great idea. It's all about being a global citizen and one community. And for everyone listening out there, that's what the fuck you can do. What the fuck can I do? Well, look, thank you again, Sabrina, just for joining us on the show. We're so grateful for all your time and and helping us understand the urgent work that, that needs to be done to support our communities, not just in Somalia and in Africa, but but around the world. Thank you so much. It's been brilliant talking to you. No, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for doing the work that you do. I mean, you are spreading awareness and conversations in every episode. So thank you. That's all for this episode. Next time on Unfucking the Future, we'll be talking with Tom Steyer, He went from investing in the coal and oil industries to leading the fight for clean, climate-friendly investments. You know, capitalism 
scales. Profitability scales. It's somewhat cynical of me to say, but unfortunately, I think it's realistic for me to also say altruism doesn't scale. It's capitalism can be good. Capitalism is basically we're going to produce what you want, so you'll pay us money. That's capitalism. Like you tell us what you want, and we'll produce it if you'll pay us for it. And the idea is okay. So my self-interest is to produce something you want. You're just going to get whatever you want. You tell me, and I'll make it. How can you make a mint while saving a world? You'll have to tune in to find out. Until then, I'm Chris Turney signing off from Sydney, Australia. Thanks for joining me in unfucking the future. We're unfucking the future. Unfucking the Future is produced by Imagine Audio and Awfully Nice for iHeart Podcasts and hosted by me, Chris Turney. The show is written by Meredith Bryan. Unfucking the Future is produced by Amber von Schassen and Rene Colvert. Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Kara Welker and Nathan Clokey are the executive producers from Imagine Audio. Jesse Burton and Katie Hodges are the executive producers from Awfully Nice. Sound design and mixing by Evan Arnett. Original music by Lily Hayden and producing services by Peter McGuigan. Sam Swinnerton wrote our theme and all those fun jingles. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and review Unfucking the Future on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.